Bibles. We're in the book of Revelation, so if you would turn there, it's the last book of the Bible, and uh, we got all the way through verse 8 of chapter 1 last week, so if that gives you any indication of how long we're going to be in the book of Revelation, it's 22 chapters, so just do the math. Um, it could be a while, but uh, we, we are going to finish up chapter one today, um, but let me give you uh, uh, just a little bit, a snapshot of what we talked about last week to give you some context as a jumping off point for today, and then you can go back and listen to the podcast to fill in the blanks. In the first eight verses of the book, it's really kind of the prologue, the beginning of the book, and, and he says very clearly in the first five words of the book of Revelation, that the purpose of the book is to reveal Jesus. To reveal Jesus. He says, a revelation from Jesus Christ. It is a revelation from Jesus, but the the whole revelation is that it's about Jesus. And so, um, I I said this last week, and again, you can go listen for a little more in-depth context, but if we are trying to interpret this book through the eyes of current events to uncover some kind of end times cheat code, then we've missed the point altogether, because it's not the point of the book. Remember, John tells us that the events of the book will soon take place, and then he says in in chapter 3, that, uh, or in verse three rather, that the time is near. So he says twice in three verses that it's gonna happen soon and that the time is near. So we don't know what that means, but we do know what it doesn't mean, right? This was written 2,000 years ago and it hasn't happened yet. So what that tells us is that soon and, 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 and God's economy of time means something different than what we understand today. That we live in finite time. We live in what we call chronos time, meaning that some of you in about 15 minutes will start looking at your watch going, wonder how much longer he'll be, right? Or you can live in kairos time, which is God's timing, which means we get lost in who he is. Have you ever watched a movie that's so epic that you look up and the credits are rolling and you're like, what just happened, right? I mean, think about The Notebook. How many of you... I revealed too much, right? <laughs> but, it, but, you know, in the words of my son-in-law, the point of the book is that we stay ready so I don't got to get ready, right? That we're staying in this state of expectancy. It's revealing that Jesus, his return is imminent, whatever imminent means, and that we stay in a state of readiness and expectancy. It's like our DEFCON system. Talked about it last week. DEFCON 5 means we are in peacetime. DEFCON 1 means war is imminent, and we want to live in DEFCON 1, in a state of expectancy, a state of high alert. And so this morning, we're looking at the rest of chapter one, and here's my prayer for you this morning. As I was thinking and praying for you this week, here is the prayer that you develop a bigger view of Jesus. A bigger view of Jesus. Why is that important? What do I mean by that? It means that no matter how big you view Jesus, he's bigger. Okay, so think about that for a minute. Some of you have a pretty big view of Jesus, and you would say, well, you don't know my world. You don't know my life. Here's what I know. Your Jesus is not big enough. 
And so a bigger view of Jesus means a bigger purpose for your life to live. And I would say that most of us have a pretty small view of Jesus. And this morning, he wants to expand it. And so we'll talk about that. It's all throughout the passage. So let's, let's jump right into it, starting with Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patience, patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, he starts off in verse 1 and says, I am a servant of Jesus. Not as an apostle. Remember, this is uh, the disciple John that wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's one of the disciples, the self-proclaimed one that Jesus loved, right? So he is known as the beloved disciple, mostly because he named himself that, right? But, but, but here he is. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, after Jesus ascends, after the Holy Spirit comes back in Acts chapter 2, now he is an apostle, an eyewitness of Jesus, and he's a part of starting the first church in Jerusalem, right? So he's lived life on life with Jesus, and now he is living his life for Jesus as a founder of the church in Jerusalem. And we fast forward, it's 90 AD or so, and he's uh, understandably the last living apostle, meaning all the other ones have died, horrible deaths. He's the only one still alive. And where is he? He's, he's living now in exile on this island. But, but here's what I love. How does he identify himself in verse 9? First he says, I'm a servant in verse 1. And now he says, your brother and companion in the suffering. In the suffering and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So, again, culturally, if you followed Jesus in that day, guess what was in store for you? Um, Anybody seen Gladiator? You're going to be fed to lions You'll be boiled in oil. Uh, Let's see, Peter was hung upside down on a cross, so he was crucified, but he didn't want to be identified as being crucified like Jesus was, so he's hung upside down. People were decapitated, stoned. It just meant that if you followed Jesus, you were going to die. And so he's identifying that. He's saying, listen, I am suffering just like you're suffering. We are fellow sufferers. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this life you will have what? Trouble. In this life you will have trouble. So Jesus was setting them up before he was ever crucified that life will be hard. That following Jesus will not be easy. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 12, everyone who lives a godly life will be what? Persecuted. Man, this is an uplifting thought today, isn't it? You came to church, you're like, hey, feed me, make me feel good. Okay, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to suffer. That the road to Jesus is a road to suffering. That following Jesus includes suffering. In fact, get this, the half-brother of James, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, not only do you suffer, but he says, consider it what? Joy. He says, consider it joy when you suffer. How many of you consider it joy when you suffer? Yeah, I'm out on that, right? 
If I don't feel just perfect, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, we don't consider it joy when things aren't working out the way we thought they should. And yet, James says consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance, which he's saying here, right? What did he say? He says patient endurance. That's another way to say perseverance, that it must have its perfect work so that I can be what? Mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That God uses suffering to bring us to a place of maturity and completeness. So John is saying here, he is suffering on the island of Patmos. And what does he say? Because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. So at the very beginning, he says that I am called to be a witness, called to testify to the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. And now he says a few verses later that I am in captivity right now. Why? Because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. So he says the very thing that I am called to testify to is the very thing that has me imprisoned. But here's what I love. He says he was called to share it because we're in this together. He's like, hey, guys, I'm not an apostle. I'm a servant, but I'm not just a servant. I'm a suffering servant, and this is you and me together. He puts himself on the level with everybody else. I'm just a guy that is suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God, and I know that you're in this with me. It's pretty good stuff. Verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day... I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So let's pause there. On the Lord's day, what does he mean by that? Well, this is uh, most likely Sunday. This is most likely the day of worship. And so it could have been uh, Saturday when he was choosing to live in a Jewish way and worship on a Saturday. It could have been Sunday. All we know is he says it's the Lord's day. So he has set aside this time, the Lord's day, and it says he was in the spirit. What is he doing? It means he is on the Lord's day. He is in worship. So he's saying at this moment, man, I am entrenched. I am having this intense worship experience. And while he's having it, what does it say? It says, I heard a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So check this out. He was worshiping Jesus in this intense way. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. It means that Jesus spoke in an unmistakable way to him. Here's what I mean. Let's just say this morning that you were in the middle of worship and the person behind you blew a trumpet in your ear. Would you hear it? Could you hear anything after it? You know, I was, I was in a church one time. I went just to check out their worship on a Sunday morning. This is about 15 years ago. And uh, I was kind of sitting up in the cheap seats. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what church, but it's in the woodlands. And uh, I, w- I, was, I, was, I was sitting there, and uh, they're in worship on the stage. And they kind of broke it down for a minute. And as they broke it down, the dude in front of me opened up a case, pulled out a trumpet, and just went to town. 
And the funny, he was in the wrong key, and he was just going. And the people on stage are looking at each other like, what is this guy doing? And I was standing behind him laughing because <laughs> I'm like, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in my life. If you're here this morning, I'm sorry. But, uh, man, it was, it was craziness, and they literally came and told him to put his trumpet away. <laughs> right? But it was unmistakable that somebody was blowing a trumpet in the room. And if you trumpeteers, you know it's loud, y'all. And here's the point. When he says it sounded like, like a trumpet, it just means it drowns everything else out. He was intensely worshiping, and in that moment, the word, the voice of Jesus spoke to him in an unmistakable way. So I talk to people all the time that talk about desperately wanting to hear the voice of God, right? Don't we all want to have those then God said moments? Does anybody not want to hear God's voice? I mean, we all want to hear it, but aren't we all a little suspect when somebody said, yeah, well, then God said, right? It's a great conversation ender, right? Well, how am I going to argue with you? You said God said, right? And, and, uh, but, but here's the deal. God speaks, and he wants to speak, and this is evident of that right? That God wants to speak to you. And so if you want to hear the voice of God, if you want to hear clearly the voice of Jesus in your life, how did John hear it? He was intense worship, y'all. He was having this intense worship experience, but here's the deal. He's already told us, you know when he was having the intense worship experience? In the middle of suffering, He was uh, in the middle of his daily suffering, in the middle of his exile. He is joyfully, patiently, intensely worshiping Jesus. Isn't it interesting? He wasn't checked out. He's not licking his wounds, feeling sorry for himself and his lot in life. He's not like, man, my 401k is in the tank. He's not saying, oh, this COVID... They made me put on a mask, right? I mean, I, I mean he, he's, not, he's not like, you know, storming the castle here. In the middle of his darkness, in the middle of his toughest time, he knew that Jesus was bigger and he worshiped. How are you doing in that area? I mean, I know that uh, in some ways I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because you're here this morning. But here's the thing, some of you came as a choice of your will. And you stopped by and you grabbed some coffee and you stood with your coffee in hand to watch the show. And in your mind, worship is, uh, I'm not really into that whole singing thing. I wonder if there's more. I wonder if worship is not about you, but about Jesus. And here's what I know for sure. If you want to hear the voice of Jesus... Worship ushers in the voice of Jesus. Uh, Worship, it it blocks out all the other voices. It helps us focus on what's most important. And, And when John was in the spirit, when John was worshiping Jesus, it says that he didn't just speak, but his voice was blowing like a trumpet. That's loud, y'all. So while suffering is an expected part of the spiritual life, so is worship in spite of your suffering. 
And if you're unwilling to worship, you're going to have a very difficult time hearing the voice of God. Verse 11. So here's this voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So um, these are seven literal churches. You see them here on the map. Uh, this is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. You see Patmos, that's where he's writing from. That's in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Asia Minor. And you see there Ephesus, which is the first church that's mentioned. And the reason it's the first church that's mentioned is because it's the closest to him. Right? So this whole idea is, is that Jesus is like, hey, listen. I need to get the word out, so I want you to receive this vision, write down everything that I'm about to show you, and then I want you to get it to the church. So all of these churches are within about 100 miles of each other, and each of them had fingers into the world around them, right? Into the countryside, into other smaller villages where there were other little churches that were sprouting up, and, and literally... At this time, Christianity was flourishing in this part of the world. Paul's missionary journeys took him to these areas. And so, man, things are blowing up. And again, as a side note, today, modern-day Turkey is the largest unreached people group in the world. 70 million people, 2,000 believers. So the script has flipped for sure. Um, but, but you look at this, so... When Jesus wanted to get the word out, where did he go? The local church. When he needed to get the word out. Now think about this. I mean, do you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. And it says they were worshiping. And about midnight, it says that there was an earthquake and the chains fell off of them and the doors flung open and they were free to go. They didn't leave, but, but, but God used this circumstance. He could have done the same thing for John, right? He could have transported him and he could have, poof, disappeared and appeared in Ephesus. And he could have gone on a, a world tour of, of modern-day Turkey proclaiming everything that he had seen as the prophet John. Could have happened. And, and God can do anything he wants, but that's not how God chose to do it. God chose to give him these words for him to scribe them and then to send them to the church because the church is the hope of the world. Now, as a result of COVID, pollster George, George, Barna, George Barna said recently that up to 20% of churches in the U.S. will close as a result. 20%. That's one in five. That's a big number. Right? And so even before that, um, church attendance has been on the decline in the U.S. for years. As a matter of fact, um, you know, when I was growing up, we were at church every week. It was just kind of what you did. Today, if you were a faithful church attender, you come one or two times a month right? It's no longer a real priority, even among committed followers of Jesus. But now people have just pushed away from the church. The church has, has, has really undergone some pretty bad marketing at the hands of uh, the people of Jesus, right? The number one thing that people think about Christians and the church is that we're judgmental, right? That we seem a little bit angry, 
and I'm on social media, and you do sometimes, right? And, and so, so you look at it, I mean, I mean, the church needs to undergo a facelift in our, in our culture because it seems like we're losing ground, and people have given up on the church. But guess who hasn't given up on the church? Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. And when he looks at you, you, the person in your seat, he sees you as the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world, y'all. Because when Jesus needs to get the word out, guess who he's using? You. You are the hope of the world, but not just you as an individual. You are an individual, a collective of individuals that come together to form the church. We are part of the greatest mobilization tool on the planet. And we're called to receive a vision from God and then to go and tell the world. Woo, come on. Verse 12. By the way, let's think about that for a minute. We're in Revelation. This is supposed to be about the end times and what's going to happen. No, this is about you today. This is about you and me right? The Bible is living and active. We don't need to look at this as some cheat code. We need to look at it as, how does this apply to me today? Are, are we finding ourselves in the story a little bit? Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay, he sees these seven golden lampstands. So what do the seven golden lampstands represent? They represent the church. We'll see that in verse 20. He tells us that they represent the seven churches. He's already spelled out who the seven churches are. And now he tells us that these golden lampstands represent seven, seven, perfect number, number of completion. And a lampstand, it was a very Jewish symbol. So if you were in the sanctuary in the temple, uh, think menorah, that there would be a lampstand, seven candles, and they would be lit day and night. That's how the priest operated. He operated under the light that came from the menorah. And so John is really kind of bringing in the Jewish heritage of the Christian faith here. You see, we're not um, just living in the New Testament, as if the Old Testament doesn't exist. We are all grafted into the Jewish family of God through Jesus. And so we've got to understand that Genesis to Revelation, this is still us. I mean, remember Jesus in Matthew 5, 17? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to fill up the law, to be the completion of the law. And so what that tells us is it all matters Every bit of it. And so I love this idea, this, this unextinguishable light. It makes me think in uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking and he says, hey, you guys, you're the salt of the earth. And then he says, you are the light of the world. It's interesting, he calls himself in John 8 the light of the world, but here in Matthew 5, on that hillside, this is his coming out party, and he says, listen, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp 
and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on what? A stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, do what? Let your light shine before men that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what does this represent? These seven churches are the light to the world around them. And that means that every individual living and, and, and breathing as a part of that church are also light to the world. That means that this morning, that, that think of our lampstand as 300 individual lights as a church. Think of us as a lampstand with a thousand points of light on it. That we are a light to the world. And we're shining for the world to see. Guys, that's good stuff. That should, that should let you know you have a purpose. You have a purpose to be light to the world. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were bla a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars coming out of his mouth. Uh, was, was a, and, and, I'm sorry. In, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun, in all its brilliance. So first he said, he saw the guy that was talking was like a son of man. Again, you see in verse 7, he, he's referencing Daniel 7.13. The son of man is coming on the clouds, and now he sees that this son of man, it's Jesus, y'all. And this is a direct reference to Daniel 7.13, written hundreds of years earlier. Now this prophecy Jesus is fulfilling. And then he, he goes on to say what he looks like. He's dressed in a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. In Daniel chapter 10, do you remember when Daniel encounters this angel who has been fighting for 21 days to get to him? And when he gets to him, it said he had a long flowing robe and he had a gold sash around his waist. So uh, he may be referring to an angelic being because any time that angelic beings come in the Bible, people are freaked out, right? I mean, this is a big deal. But also think a flowing robe and a sash around the chest. He's a priest. So now it's almost angelic, but he's clearly the head. He is the king. Then he moves on, and he says, um, his hair, white as snow. Check this bad boy out. Like wool, right? He's got this white hair. Why is his hair white? Well, in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, again, it's a direct reference. It says that God is sitting on his throne as the ancient of days, and his hair is white as wool. What it's saying is, man, I never die. Look, I've aged a little bit, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive 
and kicking, hair white as wool, eyes like blazing fire. In Greek literature, this denoted uh, passionate eyes, but it also could depict the flaming eyes of angelic beings. It says his feet were glowing as if on fire, his voice like the sound of rushing water. So think about it. His voice first sounded like a trumpet, and now it sounds like rushing waters. What do we know about rushing waters? What happens if you're standing beneath a waterfall? You are overwhelmed by the waters. So his voice was overwhelming. And it says, isn't it? In his hands are the seven stars. In verse 20, he tells us that those seven stars represent messengers, seven messengers or seven angels to the seven churches. And then he says a double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. That had to be terrifying. But again, most weeks before we start, I quote Hebrews 4.12, the Bible is living and active and it's sharper than what? Any double-edged sword. It means when Jesus speaks, it cuts through the noise and gets to the truth of the matter. Whoo! When he speaks, it's like the sound of a trumpet. It's like the sound of rushing waters and it cuts straight to our hearts. His face was like the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? Just think on a clear day when it's really, really sunny. Have you ever stared at the sun for any length of time? I mean, did you eat paint chips as a kid? I mean, why would you do that, right? That's a Tommy Boy reference. So, so you look at that and you're like, you're like, why would you stare at the sun? You can't for very long because it's just too overwhelming, right? It blinds you. His face shone like the sun. What that means is it was too bright to contain. So think about it. His feet were on fire. His eyes were on fire. His face shone like the sun. It was just too much for him to take in. But here is what I want you to see. John knew Jesus, right? John knew Jesus. He knew him as his friend, as his mentor. He knew him as a guy that did miracles, he knew him as this mysterious dude that ascended up into heaven. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine that you're hanging out with Jesus and he's like, hey, you know, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey, and y'all, I'm with you to the end of the age. And as he's saying it, he is literally levitating up into the clouds. I mean, let's just get real, y'all. That would freak you out, right? It's like, how did David Copperfield do that, right? And we see it and he goes off and he just disappears. That's how... John knew Jesus. How does he know him now? He knows him as the king. He knows him in a new way. His eyes are on fire. His voice is like the sound of waters. He is big. His, his hair is white as wool. And he is terrifying. He's no longer my homeboy. No, he is the king of kings, and what is the only response? I got to bow before him. You see, he was giving John a bigger vision of himself. Why? Because something needed to change, y'all. He needed to give him a message that would be unmistakable, and to give him a message that would be unmistakable, that he could write down, that would be life-changing for everyone that heard it, Jesus needed to be bigger. For you this morning, 
Jesus needs to be bigger. The indictment on the church in the U.S., the reason that one in five are going out of business is because we are worshiping a very small Jesus. And if Jesus is only in what you can figure out, if you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, I came here this morning because I worship Jesus, but then you spend every part of the rest of your day working on your investments, and every time the stock market changes, you're, ooh. Are you trusting Jesus or your ability to manage your money? For some of you this morning, you have developed a very small view of Jesus, and it's why, if you're being honest, you look at it and go, well, I'm kind of bored. I mean, I prayed a prayer so I don't go to hell, so I got that covered. But isn't there a little bit higher bar? Isn't there something more? When Jesus, the King of Kings, comes on the scene, something's got to change. Something in your life has to bow to something more. Jesus had a purpose for John, but he needed John to see him not as his friend, not as his mentor, not as a miracle worker. He needed to see him as a king worthy to be worshipped. And this morning, Jesus wants to give you a fresh revelation of himself. And for some of you, it's long past due. Some of you have been investigating Jesus for a while, and it's time. It's time. He's bigger and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he's ready to, to throw you into it. He's ready for you to live that adventure. But you've got to see him as big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to put you into a great adventure that's going to stretch your faith, that's going to take you out of your comfort zone, to give you a true purpose in the kingdom of God. You know, in... Uh, in April of 2014, I went through this 30 days that I had prayed 30 days prior. Hey, Jesus, if you'll wake me up in the middle of the night, I'll get up. Be careful what you pray for. I, I'm not a night owl at all. At 3 o'clock every morning for 30 days, he woke me up. Didn't set an alarm, just kind of popped up. It's go time. And so I would go in the living room and I would sit in this chair and, and I, would, I would worship I would pray, I would journal. And on this particular morning, I had this freaky Jesus moment. So just, here, here's the deal. This happened, so this is, this is my experience. I was praying, and all of a sudden, I got overwhelmed, and I started crying, and I didn't know why. I mean, I cry a lot, but, but on this day, I was just, I was overwhelmed, I'm, 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 I'm worshiping and I'm praying and all of a sudden I opened my eyes and no lie, the walls were just kind of shimmering. And, and, and the names of God, specifically the name Adonai, which is not a name that I use for God ever, just started shimmering on the walls. And, and, and so all around me are the names of God that are coming up on the walls and I'm just, I'm, I feel like I am like in heaven, like I'm like, what is going on? And I've got my eyes open and I'm crying and Jesus is revealing himself to me. And, I, and so I, I'm like, I'm kind of undone. It's kind of freaking me out, if I'm being honest. And I had been in this year-long uh, 
uh, kind of understanding with God that I was called to pastor a church. Not on my plan at all. I never wanted to pastor a church. I actually thought that pastoring a church would be kind of a beat down, you know? And so it was nothing that I wanted to do, but God had told me a year before that I was going to pastor a church. And sitting there that morning, I opened up my journal, and, and he said specifically to me, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33 talks about the desolation of Israel. This is when they went into exile, and, and, and it, it was just kind of this, this really horrible time. There's blood in the streets, body, bodies in the street. But when you keep reading, he says, but then there will be a day that I will restore them. I'll restore their fortunes to where they were. And I'm reading that. And God said, Greg, you will call your church Restoration Church. And I'm writing it down, and I'm like, ooh, okay. And he starts telling me about you. He starts telling me about what the church will be about, what we will be about. And I'm having this moment with Jesus where, man, it's like a trumpet. It was, immista- it was unmistakable. It was like the voice uh, uh, of rushing waters. It was overwhelming to me. And that was the day that all of this was set into motion. Within three months, we were meeting in a home in Wood Forest, and, and here we are today. And I tell you that, um, to tell you this, I don't care whether you believe me or not, because it happened. But here's the truth. For some of you, you're like, oh, wow, I want an experience like that. Get in the presence of Jesus. Worship him with your life, and as you worship him, as you get alone with him, as you make him priority, here's what I know for sure. We see it right here. John was just a guy. He was a fisherman that God called to change the world. And if he called a fisherman, he's calling you too. And if you will get in the flow of Jesus every day, he will speak to you like the sound of a trumpet. It will be very obvious that he's speaking to you. And what does he want to say to you? He wants to blow your mind with what he wants to do in you and through you. He wants you to be a part of being light in the world. A collection of individuals coming together and making much of Jesus in a way that changes the world. No longer your small-minded plan, but a revelation from Jesus. Come on. Who wants that? Yeah, six of you. That's awesome. (laughs) You probably didn't understand the question. (laughs) Whatever. Okay. Uh, Verse 17, then when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. So typical response to angels throughout scripture. We saw it in Daniel 10. We saw it when the angels came to the shepherds, when the angel came to Mary. They always had to say, don't be afraid. And now Jesus is here, and, you know, his, his tongue is like a sword sticking out, and he's on fire. And, and man, John falls down, and it's like, uh-oh. And Jesus reaches over and says, hey, don't be afraid. Jesus doesn't want you to be afraid. Some of you, your greatest fear is letting go. Your greatest fear is surrender. Your greatest fear is saying, Jesus, whatever you want, I'll do. Jesus, will you develop a greater vision of you in my life? 
Some of you are scared to death to pray that because you're frankly afraid of what it might cost you. And Jesus looks at you today and he puts his hand on your shoulder and here's what he says. You ready? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because whatever I've called you to, it's what you were created for. Whatever I come and bless in your life, it's what you were created to do. And whatever you think that you're holding on to that's going to bring your life, bring you life, what I have is better. It's bigger. Have a a bigger view of me. And once you have a bigger view of me, I'm going to give you a bigger purpose to live for. Some of you are wanting a bigger purpose to live for, but your Jesus is too small. And you will never have a bigger vision for your life until you have a bigger vision of Jesus. But when you get that bigger vision, it is going to freak a brother out. And he says to you, don't be afraid. Why? Why Why should you not be afraid? Coolest thing, Jesus says, because I am the first and the last. In verse 8, God said, I'm the alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And now Jesus is saying, "Um, that's me. Jesus is proclaiming his deity here, that I am the first and the last. So, you know, John, who was a God follower, right? He was very Jewish and he followed Jehovah and then he meets Jesus and then the spirit is living in him post-Acts chapter 2, but he's putting it all together now. Now Jesus is giving him this vision and he's like, I'm the first and the last. I am God. If you want to see the Father, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He is the incarnation of God. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John says it at the beginning uh, of chapter one of his book. He says, he's God. He was with him in the beginning. He was God. Paul talks about him in Colossians chapter one. In Colossians one, starting in verse 15. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is a big God. And if you want to know God, he is wrapped up in the first and the last, Jesus Jesus is not just the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is not a prophet. He is not just a great teacher. He is the king of kings and lord of lords and worthy of our surrender. Verse 18 and we're done. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's saying, I'm the living one. He's reminding John, hey, listen, you saw me ascend into heaven. Guess what? I'm still alive. I think at this point, it was probably 50 or 60 years since he had ascended. 
right? If he ascended in 33 AD or so, now it's about 90 AD. So John hadn't seen him physically in several years. And he says, listen, still alive. Not only am I alive, I'm eternally alive. I will never die. And not only will I never die, I now hold the keys of death and Hades. Some people interpret that death and hell. But here's what's interesting. Hades was actually a Greek god who was known to rule over the realm of the dead. And so again, he's pointing to a person. He's like, I hold the keys over death and that guy. I am the king over all kings. I am the God over all gods. I hold the keys to all of it. I hold the keys to life. You want to live forever? Well, I've got the keys to it. You don't have to die. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And I live forever and ever and ever and ever. And I'm inviting you into that story. So he goes on in verse 19 and 20, and he, he, he tells us, I've already told you, write it down, the seven stars in my right hand are the angels, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Starting next week, we will look at these seven churches, the characteristics of the churches, and what Jesus said to each of them. And we'll see that some churches were letting their light shine and some churches were extinguishing their light. That's why we see a decline in the church today. As we close, here are a few things that I want to say. Number one, suffering is a part of the spiritual life. So if if you've embraced a gospel that doesn't include suffering, it is incomplete at best. Suffering is a part. Persecution is a part. I think we're seeing some of that in our nation today. Probably, probably wouldn't have said that a decade ago, but I think where we sit today, I think we're starting to see if you stand on the truth of Jesus, you're likely to be persecuted. Number two, daily intimate worship will open your ears to the voice of Jesus. Listen, if you want to hear the voice of Jesus, spend time in daily worship and prayer. Spend time in daily adoration of him. And here's what I know, 100% chance. You put yourself in that flow day after day after day, and you will begin to hear the voice of Jesus like the sound of a trumpet, like rushing waters. This is the challenge. You know, we said last week, the way that we stay ready so we don't got to get ready is that we get in intimacy with Jesus every day. And, and the problem is, for a lot of us, that's just not in your plan. Your plan is not sitting in the secret place and saying, you know what, I'm blocking out all other voices because, Jesus, I want to hear your voice. You begin to worship him with your life and make him priority. 100% chance you will begin to hear the voice of Jesus. Number three, Jesus wants to expand your view of him into something bigger. 
pretty self-explanatory. He did it for John. He blew John's mind and he brought him to his knees. And I would say to you that if your view of Jesus isn't bringing you to your knees and, and, and awesome worship of him, then your Jesus is too small. If you've looked at your watch two or three times over the last 30 minutes or so, wondering when this is over, there's a good chance that Jesus is just something that you do. When's the last time you were overwhelmed by Jesus? Start praying that prayer. Jesus, I want you to be bigger to me. I want you to become bigger to me. I, I want to I see you in a way that I've never seen you before. You do that, he'll show himself bigger, and he will vault you into the adventure of a lifetime. And number four, the church is still the way Jesus wants to get the word out. Listen, man, there's been a lot of indictments on the local church. We've not done our job. We can look at every segment of society, every, every social area of society where we should have gotten involved and we didn't. And so the government stepped in and screwed it all up. And that's just the truth, that, that the government has really moved into areas where the church should have been in the first place. And we have, we have ceded our opportunity to be the light of the world to other people. And we've done it out of convenience. Do we really want to be light to the world? It means we've got to wake up, y'all. We are on this golden lampstand, and Jesus wants to use us to illuminate dark places. But it means that this can't be your spirituality. An hour and a half on a Sunday morning just isn't going to get it done. So if you're just filling up a seat, you're missing the bigger part of the spiritual life. We come in here so that we can go out there changed and transformed and be light to the world. Are you in? This is how we change the world. And man, I would love to think that in 2020, that if Jesus were, were sending a new message, that we would be one of the seven influential churches that he would call on to get the word out. That we would be this faithful remnant, that we would be white hot, that we would be so alive and see Jesus is so much bigger that he would trust us. You know what it means? It means that we are a collection of individuals. It means that you take personal responsibility for seeing Jesus as bigger. That you receive that bigness, that calling. And then we collectively come together and we change the world. Because collectively, we are living the way we were called to live. It's the church, the hope of the world. Jesus, this morning, we just need a bigger vision, a bigger view. And I prayed this morning that, man, we wouldn't feel condemnation. God, maybe, maybe some this morning are taking up a seat, but maybe this morning we would take that as, as a loving way to say, man, I need to seek a bigger view of Jesus. Every week, we just want to see, Jesus, we've made you too small in some way, and we need for you to be bigger. Because there's a sense of urgency that you're calling us to. Because the time is near. 
Because these events will soon happen. We don't know what they look like, what that looks like, but it could be today. And if it could be today, it means that we need to urgently pursue our King of Kings in a way that transforms us, that rocks us to our core. And so, Jesus, would you be bigger?